the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, was one of the most accomplished Jews who ever lived. He wrote a Shulchan Aruch, a code of Jewish law that's followed till today. He wrote a Siddur. How many people in recent times can claim that they wrote a Siddur? Literally the textbook that's used by Jews across the world to pray. He took 60 different versions of the Siddur, examined them for grammatical and Kabbalistic correctness, and composed this new Nusach um, in line with the Arizal's intentions that we use till today and so do thousands. He founded the movement of Chabad, which seven generations later has touched every Jew on the planet. But I think one of the most important and central things that the Alter Rebbe did in his lifetime was to write the Tanya. Not just because it was the first of its kind in the comprehensive guide to how to serve God in a real and joyful way, but also because it radically changed and redefined one of the fundamental principles of Judaism that had existed until then. And I'll call it personal Judaism. You see, ever since the revelation on Mount Sinai, the concept of a tzaddik, of a leader, a spiritual leader, became integral to the Jewish people. The Jews only heard from God two of the Ten Commandments directly. Everything from then forth was passed on by Moshe Rabbeinu. He was the one in direct communication with God, and he was the conduit for God's call of the hour, leading, guiding, inspiring a generation. Once he passed, and leadership handed over to Joshua, who led them into Israel, the process continued. There was always a leader, always a central figure around whom everything Jewish revolved. And this process continued all the way through time. No matter where Jews were, no matter what they lived through, there was always someone they could turn to as the role model, as the star. And of course, with the rise of Hasidism, with the Baal Shem Tov founding the Hasidic movement, the role of the tzaddik became accentuated, especially. Because now, not only was he transmitting God's teachings and actionable requests, but he also became a spiritual mentor of sorts. The tzaddik was looked, as, looked at as the ball of energy, the ball of godly inspiration, that if you hung around, you could draw power, you could draw inspiration for your own service of God. Multiple times a year, in the early generations, Hasidim would gather in the Rebbe's court. They didn't just come once a year, or once every two years, or once every three. As often as you could, to bask in the Rebbe's glow. And when you did, it was like a high-voltage energy zap. You hung around the Rebbe, you got exposed to intense godliness, and then, with that power, you went home and translated into your everyday life. So in a certain way, your own, your own Judaism was dependent on your relationship with the tzaddik. By writing the Tanya, with the Alter Rebbe laying out the philosophy, the ideology, the theology of Chabad, he literally put it ink on paper. Essentially what he did was create a paradigm shift. He said, from now on, the role of a Rebbe 
is no longer only to inspire, but to instruct. Visitations in the Rebbe's court are no longer about the experience, but about the education. The Rebbe will teach you ideas, holy ideas, deep meditations, and it will be on you to make Judaism yours. No longer is it going to be that you can walk into a zone and the fire, the holiness, will just give you such a surge of energy that you'll be able to continue and last off of that. Now it's time to sustain your own Yiddishkeit experience. And it was a huge revolution because up until that time, the human mind was not seen as a vehicle to inspire Judaism. It was seen as an obstruction. The mind is cold. The mind is analytical. The mind could be apathetic. And the Alter Rebbe said, I believe that the mind can be the key to the soul. We can't continue forever with the model where people are dependent on other people for their feelings and their passions. It's time to individualize it. It's time to give everybody the tools so that they can make it on their own. And this is what the Chabad Rebbe's throughout their generations demanded of their students. You can come for Shabbos, you can come for Yom Tif, but what you're gonna hear are ideas that you need to carry back for yourself. They tell a story that in one of the earlier Hasidic generations, one of the Chabad Hasidim came to his Rebbe and complained that when he davens, it doesn't look so great, it doesn't feel so great, but he watches his neighbor, who's from a different Hasidic dynasty, and he's on fire when he davens. Sparks are flying, and it looks so much more glamorous, so much more attractive. It's not fair. So the Rebbe, I think it was the Tzamech Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, he said, when that Chassid davens, it's not him davening. It's his Rebbe davening. In other words, it, he's davening based on the inspiration that he's gotten from his leader, but it never became personal. In the Chabad model, you have to struggle through it to make it your own. And maybe it might not look as glitzy and glamoury, but it's more real. The truth is that the Alter Rebbe was following a mandate. He didn't make this up on his own. The first time he came to his great teacher, the Magid of Mizrich, the Magid called him in and said, welcome, I've been waiting for you. The Baal Shem Tov, the Magid's teacher, had told him that there was a new soul that was going to, going to be born into the Jewish world. We talk a lot about how souls are recycled. Souls come into the world, and when they don't finish the full job, they get reincarnated. It's the concept of Gilgulim in Kabbalah. Many, many, most of the souls are recycled. Very rarely does a new soul, an entirely new soul, come into the world. And the Baal Shem Tov told the Magid that you are going to have a disciple that's going to be a new soul. I don't want to ever meet him personally. Baal Tov made that purposeful move where he said he didn't want to meet him. But he wanted the Magid to be his teacher. And he gave the Magid the Alter Rebbe's purpose. He revealed to him what he's supposed to do in this world. And when he came, the Magid told him, your mandate is to create a model of Hasidus 
that's going to be pnimi. Pnimi means internalizable, individualizable, if these are words. The idea is create a model where people don't rely on other people. They're able to ingest concepts and create, generate emotions and thereby live a personal Judaism. The Tanya has two, originally had only two parts. We talk about Tanya having five books. Originally it only had two parts. Part one, which we just finished studying the last year and a half, the discipline, how to live a wholesome Jewish life. The ultimate image being the Benoni, the hero of the Tanya who is in control practically of thought, speech, and action, even though inside the battle rages. Part two, which we're beginning to learn, is called in Hebrew, Shar Hayichud Emuna, the gateway of unity and faith. And what it is, is a very deep intellectual exercise, delving into the workings of creation. It examines the fabric, the very fabric of reality, gets to the heart, really, of what Hashem and the universe are all about. Let's call it the ideas behind the inspiration, the perspective behind the purpose. Logically, part two should be first. Just like practically, in order to generate feeling, you have to first have ideas to meditate on. Before you can embrace your purpose, you have to have perspective. Historically, we're also told that the Alter Rebbe considered publishing part two before part one, and for whatever reason, it didn't happen. I don't think it's, it's explained clearly in the sources why, but it seems like the Alter Rebbe, since the Tanya is ultimately a book about serving God, he wanted to first let you know what's required, what's desired of you, and then you can learn the tools that help you get there. So part two of the Tanya has 12 chapters which means for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be putting on our thinking caps, engaging our minds, asking some deep questions. What is at the core of the universe? What is Hashem? What is the relationship between Hashem and His world? But it's going to be very theological. That's going to start next class. We're going to do chapter one. First, there's an introduction to chapter two in the Tanya. See, I set it up. In the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe has a little, little page, um, introduction to part two. He calls it the education of a child. Chinuch katan, and you'll soon see why. And the way I see it, the introduction is the bridge from part one of the Tanya to part two. The Alter Rebbe at the very end of the introduction, the last three lines, says that the beginning of all feeling, the beginning of arousing any emotional engagement to Hashem, is to really be connected to the pure faith in the unity of God. Which means the Alter Rebbe is saying, Anybody who wants to have a healthy, passionate relationship with God needs to study the upcoming 12 chapters which examine the unity and faith in God. However, 
we have to always remain aware that in the end, as intellectual as we get, the goal of all the intellect is to ignite the fire in our soul, to light up the heart so that we live as Jews in the most inspired way. In other words, we're about to shift gears, the Altar Rebbe is saying. Till now we're talking about human struggle, Jewish, ser- Jewish way of serving God. Now we're going completely to the mind, but remember that ultimately it has to merge. The mind and the heart have to come together. The mind has to work in service of the heart so that any ideas we discover can be a catalyst for inspired Judaism. And here's how the Altar Rebbe frames it. Everything in Torah is framed around the Torah. So the Altar Rebbe begins with a verse. In one of the final portions of the Torah, part of Moses' parting speech, the whole Sefer Devarim, the whole fifth book of the Torah, is Moshe's final words that he gave in the last month before his passing. And uh, he says in one of the verses, Ki im shamor tishmerun et kol ha-mitzvah hazot, you shall guard everything that I command you to do, to love Hashem, to go in His ways, and to cleave to Him. You should guard everything I'm commanding you to do. Love Hashem, go in His ways, and cleave to Him. Now, everybody understands that it's possible to command somebody to do something, but it's not possible to command somebody to feel something. So how is love of Hashem framed as a commandment? How does Hashem say, you should guard everything I command you to do, love me? You can't command the feeling. Either I feel or I don't feel. And furthermore, even if you could command the feeling, a feeling is a feeling, not an action. So why does Hashem say, what I'm commanding you to do, love Hashem? Love Hashem is not a deed. Love Hashem is an emotion. So we have two strange adjectives in describing love of Hashem. When it should really be just a feeling. And the Alter Rebbe says, ideally it's true. Love of God should be natural. Love of God should be an experience that results right out of your soul. He calls it an experience of divine ecstasy, a soul getting in touch with the truth of its being and just expiring into Hashemliness, into the sublime. That's how it should be. Love of Hashem should not be commanded, should not be dictated. It should just flow freely. However, that kind of a love is reserved for special people. Al-Tayyabah says it's reserved for tzaddikim. Calls it a taste of the world to come. References the verse that Hashem says to Aharon. Avodat matana etenet kuhunatchem. I'm giving you the priesthood as a service of a gift. Avodat matana. It's a strange combination of words. If it's work, it's not a gift. If it's a gift, it's not work. And the Al-Tayyabah says it's a gift commensurate with the work. You put in the work up to the maximum capacity that you can and then Hashem gifts you with something totally beyond your capacity. This sort of ideal, emotional relationship with God 
doesn't happen to everyone. The type of love, and love here is a code word for passion and inspiration in general, the heart part of Judaism, that we, most people, get to experience is what I like to call not natural love, but manufactured love. It's love... Huh? It's an arranged marriage. An arranged marriage where you have to put in the work, though. You have to generate it. You have to produce it. You have to produce it by meditating on certain ideas that are triggers to elicit emotional responses. You have to bring it into being by using the capabilities that you have because you're not in touch with that natural, free-flowing love. But you do have control over your mind. Engage it in the process of contemplation. Fill it up with ideas that bring about these types of responses. And then, that's the type of love and emotional relationship you can have with God. That's the sense of the commandment to do it. Do it means do the things that you need to do to engender the love. That's the commandment as well. The commandment is study, learn, gain more information that can be used in the process of arousing your heart. That's incumbent on every single Jew. Hashem says you have to guard the path that I've given you, that I've commanded you to do, to love Hashem. That means do your part. Use the human side of yourself, the intellectual side of yourself, as a vehicle, as a springboard to inspiring the heart. The thing, though, when you engage with God on an emotional level is that there's a risk factor. See, it's much easier to be the robotic Jew on the clock. Does what he has to do, wakes up in the morning. Let's give him the most points, okay? He puts on filming in the morning, davens the full davening, learns even afterwards, goes to business, does what he has to do honestly. He's checking all the boxes. And then he says, okay, and then after that, don't bother me. I'll come to Shul even on Purim, I'll listen to the Megillah twice, night and in the morning. I'll do the Seder, no problem. But I don't want to go, I don't want to take it further and make it a personal relationship. I'll just do what I have to do. It's much easier. Because then you never have to be introspective. If for you Judaism turns into a checklist, you'll never be forced to look inside. The second you want to take that step, transfer, from being a robotic Jew to an engaged Jew, now there's an honesty and a vulnerability that's required. Once you engage the heart, you're opening new doors. You might, have, you might end up discovering parts of yourself that you don't like, parts of your character that you don't like. I think I told the story here. I had a teacher in yeshiva whose grandfather was uh, a very, very, what they call an Erlichayid, real earnest, serious Jew. Wasn't a chassid, but he took his life seriously, and really seriously. He woke up every morning before the sun, 
Davin Vasikin, which is as the sun rises, you say Shmon Esrei, learned for 10, 12 hours a day, came home 10, 30 p.m., had supper, went to sleep, rinse and repeat. This guy was no jokes. And his path from home to the yeshiva where he would study was in his 60s. Okay, we're not talking about a 20-year-old. Would pass by the Lubavitch, the Chabad yeshiva. And he noticed something funny where on certain nights of the week, he couldn't see you know, all the way in, but he can see that there was this table set with food and uh, plates and napkins, and he heard songs. And uh, it was strange, because he said, this is a yeshiva, that means people are supposed to be learning, and yet they're having parties, and they're singing. It doesn't make sense to me. And one day he was walking with his friend, who was a Chabad chassid, Thursday night, and they're passing by, and sure enough, we know this as a fabrengen. That's what was going on. They were having a fabrengen. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says to his friend, he says, what is this? You know, I thought young boys are supposed to take their studies seriously. Every Thursday night, I come here, there's another party. What's going on? So his friend was obviously a smart man. He knew how to answer the person, not the question. And he said, tell me, when was the last time you ever thought about the negative parts of your character? When was the last time? I, I don't have time to think about it. I, every day I do the same thing. I learn Torah the whole day. So he said, that's what these boys are doing. Every week they gather to be serious and to take a serious look into themselves so that they can be better people. The rest of the day they learn. That's, that's when you're not walking by the yeshiva. You don't see that part. They still don't learn the whole day. But they take time also to look deeper. And that's because of this part of Hasidism. The part of wanting to be not only a mind, action Jew, but a heart Jew. And there's vulnerability associated with that. Some days you'll have highs, some days you'll have lows, some days you'll be more enthusiastic, some days you'll be less enthusiastic. The Alter Rebbe calls these uh, falls. You'll fall, not fall into sin, but fall in the sense that some days there'll be motivation, some days there won't. Some people want to avoid that altogether because of that. When you go into this path, you take that risk. And the Alter Rebbe says, I want you to know that there is a tool that you can use. There's something to fall back on so that you never fall fully. King Solomon in Proverbs says, Sheva yipol tzaddik v'kam. The righteous man falls seven times, but he always gets up. Ki yipol lo yutal. Even as he falls, he never becomes fully suspended. He never becomes fully prostrated or whatever the fancy words in English are. But he never loses it completely. What's the tool? What's the tool that even when you seem to be in a fall, you're able to get up? I heard a beautiful story that the Rebbe used to give dollars starting in 1986 every Sunday. Anybody could file by and receive a dollar and a blessing and there was like a private moment that you could have with the Rebbe. There was a young girl who came from a faraway country with her family for the first time and a lot of excitement had been, been built up around this first meeting. And she was told, of course, about the holiness of the Rebbe and how he's such a tzaddik and a leader of a generation and his care and his empathy for every single Jew. The lines 
were incredibly long in New York, and so she needed to wait two, three hours before she got her moment with the Rebbe. The Rebbe gave her a dollar. She was incredibly happy, overwhelmed by the experience. And then as she walked out of the 770 building, she slipped and fell and hurt herself. And she said to herself, how could this be? Ten-year-old. I've heard so much about the holiness, the righteousness. And then I get a dollar, which means I'm holding a piece of something which the Rebbe has invested his energy in, and I fall. She must have been a bit mischievous, but she got back in the line. (laughs) And she waited a bit longer and came to the Rebbe. I've tried to find this on video, but I, I haven't yet managed to find it. And she said to the Rebbe, she asked, how could it be that you gave me a dollar and I fell? And the Rebbe said to her, I didn't give you the dollar so you wouldn't fall. I gave you the dollar so that when you fall, you can get get back up. That's one kind of tool. But we talked about the Tanya being personal. The Tanya having to be able to resonate from within. So the Alter Rebbe says, surprising as it may sound, your childhood education is the tool. Let me explain this a little bit. Talking to the wrong crowd, right? That's what I heard, a little whisper. We'll get to that in a second. There's another verse in Proverbs, in Mishlei. Shlomo HaMelech says, Educate a child according to his way. It's a very wise statement. I would say it's a statement that's only come to be appreciated in recent times. Every child has a unique way. Every child has unique needs. Every child processes information in a different way. And it's important that when educators educate, they teach each child according to his or her individual needs. So many people today, unfortunately, we hear reject their education because it wasn't tailored to their needs. So it's a very, very impactful idea that education needs to be done in a customized way. At the same time, every healthy adult understands that we don't ever want these children to grow up selfish and thinking that everything always has to tailor itself to my needs. We hope that children can graduate that they can adapt to the sophistications of the way our world works, and that they're wholesome in the sense that they achieve this newfound appreciation and maturity as they grow and go through life. So it's curious that, although everyone likes to quote the beginning of that verse, let's take a look at the end of that verse. Shlomo HaMelech says, the reason you should educate a child according to his way is so that gam ki yazkin, even as he grows older, lo yasur mimena, he never leaves it. Educate a child in an individual, customized way so that when he grows older, he never leaves that way, really. We don't ever want children to leave their primitive, immature, childish way of thinking. Doesn't sound right. Educate a child according to his way, I understand. But why would you encourage keeping that way going 
for the rest of his life. <clears throat> in a deeper way, the Alter Rebbe frames the question in the following way. He says, why would, you prov- why would you prefer subjective truth to objective truth? If you're educating a child according to his way, what that means is that you are taking whatever it is you want to transmit and putting it, boxing it into the perspective, the prism, the lens of this individual child. Don't you ever want him to rise to be able to see the truth objectively? Why wouldn't you want him to leave? And the Alter Rebbe says that of course, the education that we give and the way we do it is not what we want him to stay with forever. Of course we want him to grow. Of course we want him to broaden his horizons. Of course we want him to see life in a different way. But we want to give him a secure base, an anchor that he can always fall back on when a time of challenge, a trial, a test comes his way. A child who wasn't educated according to his way will find that when he encounters things that he must battle, has no base to go back to. When there's a secure base, there's a possibility for him to jump forward with success. Today, psychologically, we know this all the time in terms of family and school. Children succeed academically when the home functions properly. When there's dysfunction in the family, it could bleed out in other areas. You can't propel somebody forward if they have no baseline. And so the Alter Rebbe says the meaning of the verse is if you want to secure a Jew in the sense that he'll never fall completely, make sure he has his way. Something he was taught, something he absorbed in his childhood that will always be able to stay with him. The Alter Rebbe talks about it in terms of an emotional relationship with God. In the Tanya itself, he says that uh, the type of emotional connection that a child develops to Hashem is something that should stay with him always. But in a broader way, I think we can apply this to the general method of teaching children. You know, most children are not taught with sophistication. The best children's teachers are the ones that communicate ideas simply. Children don't live in a space of, I have answers. They live in a space of, I have no questions. And we see that especially when it comes to Judaism. A child's faith in Hashem is simple. It's only as adults that we develop all these problems and doubts and issues, and, which is great and important. But the emunah of a child is what's called in Hebrew, emunah pshuta, it's simple. Not because he has it all figured out, but because it's just the obvious reality. You know, in many letters of the Rebbe about education, there's this recurring theme where the Rebbe would always talk about the importance of educating children properly. Not just in terms of the material that you teach them, but the values and the spirit that comes across in the schools. And he always quoted, the Torah says, Ki ha'adam A person is like a tree of the field. Many reasons for this comparison between a human and a tree. But one of them that he would always draw on was that if you have a fully grown tree and you make a scratch or a dent or an improvement, both the negative and the positive effects are very little 
relatively. Because the tree is already formed. But if you have in your hands a seed, the smallest improvement can end up improving the entirety of the tree and all the fruits that it will bear forevermore. And the smallest damage can inflict damage onto the entirety of the tree and all the fruits that it will bear forevermore. The Rebbe was very unflinching because of that and his demands that everything in the school has to operate from a spirit of holiness. He talked about co-ed classrooms. He talked about the order of the structure of the day, studying holy before non-holy, you know, Hebrew studies before secular studies, which teachers could be chosen to teach in, in, in schools. It wasn't just about the curriculum. Very important, the curriculum. But also that everything that a child sees in his formative, most impressionable years should be things that align with the truth of the Torah way. Because what you give a child is what stays with him for the negative and for the positive. And in the sense of serving God, the Alter Rebbe says, if there's a secure base to begin with, then even in times of low emotional motivation, you'll be able to draw on that and um, use it to keep you going till the next wave comes along and then you can ride it. But the elephant in the room is, what about those that had no Jewish education? What do we do about those that don't have a baseline? So the Alter Rebbe doesn't address it in the Tanya because he talks in the wholesome model, but I heard from one of my Tanya teachers that it seems that somebody who comes to Yiddishkeit later in life, the period of transition is the baseline. Because what's the common denominator between a Baal Tshuva's return and a child's education is that in both of those phases, Judaism is simple. If you speak to those that have adopted later in life being fully Jewish, and if you speak to each other, because we're each on a journey, everyone can point to a time in their life when there were no questions. It was just, God is real. I had an epiphany. I can see it. It's time to embrace something new. Later, all the Balshuvas go through a period of asking questions, which is fantastic because you have to build on that and you have to make sure that it's becoming part of you. But they have a time in their life that resembles a childlike approach to God and godliness. And so, while it's not in the Tanya, it seems that the tshuva itself the journey of return itself replaces and becomes what it is that keeps you going in times of doubt. Now, really, I should ask you guys for, you know, if that's good or, if that's good or no good, because I haven't been through it. So uh, you guys will be the judge on that. But essentially, that's what it comes down to. The Alter Rebbe's message, as we're about to begin a very deep academic part of Hasidus is that everything we're going to study should be looked at as the beginning of the journey in igniting the heart. In other words, everything begins with pure faith in God's singularity and God's unity. But what it's there for is to be as a catalyst to light up the heart, to be a beginning of emotional connection to God. 
So with that, we're going to leave the heart on the side for a couple of months and go into the deep process of the 12 chapters of Book 2 of the Tanya.